Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We are at the end of verse 2. And um, I wanted to kind of stop there. And I you know, was hoping to go through 1 Timothy chapter 5 without, you know, not taking, you know, months or what have you. But uh, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the end of verse 2 there because I just think it's so important. Uh, and I really haven't done a, a, a couple messages on sexual purity for some time, and it's just so relevant, something that uh, we all need to give attention to in our Christian walks and uh, making sure that we're right with God. <clears throat> and uh, and you know, we've, the Bible says, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Okay, And that was stated by the Apostle Paul, who recognized that Christians often can think that they're the exception to the rule, that they can kind of float their boat next to the lake of fire and not get burned. Uh, in fact, Paul says, Be not deceived, what a man sows, this he shall also reap. He that sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, and we shall reap if we continue. He goes on to say, and he's saying that we can be deceived by thinking other people will reap what they sow, but not me. And the Apostle Paul, before he says, you know, uh, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, he mentions those who fell in various ways, including idolatry, including becoming complainers and whiners, and that characterized their lives, you know, basically blaming God for things or what have you. Uh, and then, but he also talks about falling into sexual sin there in chapter 10. He gives different things, different ways the Israelites fell. But before he gives the, the examples of them falling and saying they, two times he says these were written down as examples for us so we would not fall in the same way they would, just before he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Before all of that, he, gives, he lets us know that he is concerned about his own walk with God. And 1 Corinthians 9, the chapter before that, and there's no chapter breaks in the original letter, right? And remember what he said, that he beats his body down so that after he preaches the gospel to other people, the saving gospel, that after he preached that gospel to others, that he himself would not become reprobate, rejected, uh, cast away. Uh, these are different translations of that Greek word. The Greek word is adakamas, adakamas. And we know that the Apostle Paul is serious about that. Now, some want to minimize the meaning of that word as though it's not as serious as we might think. It doesn't really mean damnation. The only problem with that is when you look at Paul's usage in his letters to the Corinthians, when he's warning them about sexual sin and so forth, he also says to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that He's going to come to them with a rod because there are still those who haven't repented of their sins, including their sexual perversion or sensuality. Then he says, Christ is in you. He dwells in you. But he, he says, well, he first he says, examine yourself, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Christ lives in you unless you are a docamas. Same Greek word. So Paul beats his body down so after preaching to others, so he will not become what? Disqualified. That's not a bad translation uh, in regard to uh, the context. He's talking about running the race to win. He's talking about becoming disqualified. He's not like, well, you know what? I'll still come in second or third place. No, you either win or you don't. And he's concerned about becoming a docamas. This is really, really serious. And he doesn't want to become disqualified from the race of salvation. So Paul is here warning Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 5, if I said that right earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says in verse 2, and, and, and we ought to read verses 1 and 2, because <clears throat> it's about six different relationships that we have in the church in chapter 5. He underscores most of these relationships he has in view. In the first couple of verses, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. So treat older men like a father with kindness and respect. To younger men as brothers. Now he's writing to Timothy, who is a young man. Remember, he tells Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Treat the younger men as your brothers. 
And the older women as what? As mothers. And we went through all that last Wednesday evening. And then he says, and the younger women as what? Sisters. But then he adds some words. Treat them as sisters in what? All purity. In all purity. So now it's interesting here because he doesn't really qualify the other relationships in verses 1 and 2 so much, you know. But he qualifies this one by emphasizing treat them as your sisters, and he means in this way, with all purity. In other words, young men in the fellowship, you know, older men, whoever you are, treat your sisters in the fellowship, the sisters in Christ, as sisters, as though they are your literal sister at home. And how would you treat your sister at home if you were a Christian man? You with respect, and also you would not be involved with her sexually, amen? Which would be an abomination, repugnant in the eyes of God. And there's much in Scripture that warns about incestuous relationships, all types of different sinful relationships, homosexual relationships, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 22, uh, relationships between humans and animals, bestiality. Uh, he warned, God warns about all that stuff. And no wonder he does. Do you know that stuff's rampant in our country right now? I just saw a news story, and it was about a man, and I didn't even have time to read it because it was, it was so disgusting. I didn't even know if I wanted to click on it. But a man who, you know, and I don't know how old the story was. I just saw it uh, come up and uh, when I was looking when I was researching, and it was a man who, you know, uh, had relations with his daughter and held her captive, and he had like half a dozen children through her. That is wicked stuff. And I'm like, man, God gives us these moral laws for a reason. And how, by the way, a lot of you kind of were aghast when I mentioned that. But how? Why? How do you know that that's wrong? Does Darwinian evolution and that theory of evolution absent from the Bible tell you it's wrong? No. In the world, especially given relativism and postmodernism, where there's no, basically, there's no objective truth, there's no, you know, everything's just based on pragmatism and it's how you feel and, you know, what are the, you know, outcome-based, you know, thinking uh, and so forth. Uh, and, and in postmodernism, there's not, you know, objective truth that you can go by. And if you jettison the Bible, anything goes. And if you don't have King Jesus, who is your master, you know, Biden's not going to really instill much inspiration to be moral. I mean, look at Hunter, you know, because Hunter Biden doesn't have Jesus as his Lord, you know. And we need to make sure Jesus is the Lord. We make sure we know what God's word says about these things. But it's interesting, the word purity there is hognea, uh, hognea okay? And hognea, it only appears two times in the New Testament. However, the root word uh, is hognos. And hognos uh, means defilements or impurities. Uh, it means to be inwardly pure, but also to have outward conduct that is pure. And it's interesting because uh, Marvin Vincent, in his word studies, he's a Greek scholar, he says the root word hognos was, and he says always with a moral sense, but he says not limited to the sins of the flesh, not just your conduct, but covering purity in motives as well as acts, your, your, you know, your conduct. So, and it's interesting because I looked at different sources on that particular Greek word. Hognos appears, oh, you know, four or five times, but hognea appears just twice, but they're related to each other. And, and I continue to see uh, that this word deals with internal heart morality, but also your conduct. And I love that because Jesus dealt with our conduct, but he also dealt a lot with the heart, right? He said, when you shall not commit adultery, he also said that it wasn't just a matter of acting out in adultery, 
But he said, if a man lusts with a woman in his heart, and he's basically saying he wants to sleep with her in his heart, you know, uh, that he commits adultery in his heart. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus also said that, you know, they, they knew, they were aware, as he talks to his disciples, thou, you know, thou shalt not murder. But he says, if you have hatred in your heart toward your brother, you're guilty of murder, right? Even if you say, call your brother a fool or raka, empty-headed, you know, you got this angry heart. Maybe you're not killing him, but you're guilty of murder. And we need to make sure that we get right with God in our hearts. So it's interesting that Paul here uses a Greek word that's not very common in the Greek language, but has a meaning, and he uses it here with Timothy. And I think it's interesting. This is what I thought was fascinating, because I kind of fixated on the word all, purity. I thought, ah, maybe he's using the word all. And it's translated in a couple translations. I looked at maybe a dozen translations of this verse, and a couple translations, like the majority standard version, and a couple translations have it as absolute purity. But uh, the Greek word generally can, can be translated absolute, but it means all. So when there's two types of purity that that Greek word pertains to, when he says all purity, he has at least those two covered, right? Inward purity, right? And also our conduct. And I think this is quite interesting. And then when you look at how the word is used, now not uh, hognea, but hognos, the one that is, comes up a couple more times than hognea, it's used in 1 John 3, 3, where it says, he that has his hope of Christ coming purifies himself even as he is pure. And the word used of Jesus being pure there is hognos. And it means to be unmixed, uncontaminated, you know? It's also used in the secular world of, you know, there's different words for purity used in Greek, and uh, many of them have that idea of not being mixed, like metals that aren't mixed, wine that's unmixed. Uh, it's used in the scripture, this word hognos, of uh, Paul wanting to present us as pure virgins. It's translated pure right there. The church as a pure virgin, I should say, singular. But it's also used in James chapter 3, verse 17, of heavenly wisdom, which is from above, which is contrasted with natural wisdom, which he says is demonic, the wisdom of this world. You know, the wisdom of this world is all about what? Self, Right? Psychology is basically based on self, even going back to Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and those guys. And it's uh, uh, where biblical revelation and God's wisdom is God-centered, and it's unmixed. So it's called, it's, it's heavenly wisdom, James says, it's pure. It's not mixed. Like Peter says, to drink the pure milk or desire the pure milk of the word, Amen. So we don't want to, we, we want to make sure that we're pure in heart. But I find it interesting that the word hognea, okay, uh, hognea only appears twice, right here. And if you back up to chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, a few verses back, go to verse 12. This is the other time it appears in the New Testament. In just a few verses before this, and look what he says to Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in what? Speech, conduct, love, faith, and what? Purity. Purity. Hognea. Show yourself to be what? An example to those who believe. So he's telling Timothy how you are an example in the fellowship as a young pastor, as a young leader. And one of the ways you show that you're an example is by love, you know, loving people with your speech, watch your tongue, uh, your conduct, he says, your faith. And he says, and the last thing on the list is purity. Is purity. And sometimes the first thing on a list is the most important. Sometimes the last thing on the list is most important. You know? Uh, I know when, uh, you're, when you write. I remember working with someone to do a commercial one time for radio. And we were advertising. They wanted me to call in because I was speaking somewhere wherever they invited me, and they wanted to know how to write the advertisement. And I'm like, well, I just want to say this, that, and the other, I guess, you know. And the guy that was a pro advertising, he says, hey, Joe, what if you put this thing at the end because you want to emphasize what you leave off at the end kind of sticks in their minds. Oh, that's interesting. Is the Holy Spirit doing that here? I'm not saying that because I wouldn't put, you know, love's on that list too, right? Love is the highest of all, right? But purity is incredibly important. And he's telling him to be an example to the rest of the flock. Let no one despise your youth, 
Be a model. Be an example in these things, Timothy. Because that way they will have a hard time despising you because you're a young pastor. Because you'll be exemplary. They won't have everything to condemn you with. But now he's getting into the nitty gritty and letting know what that purity looks like. Are you with me? So in chapter 5, verse 2, you would just keep reading and he's telling Timothy, with the ladies in the fellowship, the younger ladies, treat them as your sisters with all purity, making sure your motives are right, making sure your conduct is right. And Timothy, if you're struggling with that, you need to stop and you need to get on your knees and say, God, may my motives be right with you. May I have no designs but glorifying you. And may I treat them like sisters. And I, may I not just me make sure I'm not preying on them, but I make, may I make sure that I'm protecting them as like I would protect a sister, amen, and her moral purity, amen? And I look at it this way. Sometimes I just think about this. You know, is, is when I'm a counsel man, when I encourage men, we should be praying for women, not praying on women. Amen. Amen. And we should be praying for them as our sisters because truthfully they are our sisters. Last week's message was how we are a family. Amen. Amen. And they are indeed our sisters in the Lord. And we should be praying for them, not praying on them. Amen. Amen. And not treating them like pieces of meat to be exploited, to be scarfed down. But they bear the very image of God, amen? And we recognize what God made women and men to be. Men and women are made in his image, amen? And he created marriage so the two would become what? One flesh. So they'd be fruitful and multiply, but it would be two that would become one flesh. That God wants to guard that relationship, so they would be fruitful and multiply, but also so they'd be a, divine, a, a picture of God's divine romance with Christ and the church, amen? And Satan hates that. That's one reason Satan hates marriage. I've told you that for years, is because it's a picture of God's love for his people. And Jesus did not die for fallen angels like Satan, and he hates that. Because Satan rebelled with high treason. He saw the very glory of God. He walked amidst the stones of fire. He was one of the anointed cherubim. Amen? We know there's four of them. But at one time, there was five. Or there was four and he was replaced. We don't know for sure. But the anointed cherubim are the ones who begin, are, are the worship leaders. We know that. Go to Revelation 4 and 5. Not, don't go there literally, because I'm on a little tangent right now. But if you go to Revelation 4, you see the worship begins with them. Then it spreads all the angels into human beings, and there's this all of creation ends up worshiping God in the end. But they begin the worship of God. No wonder he uses music so effectively on this planet. And no wonder so much music is about promiscuity. There's studies that have been done that show if you listen to godless music, secular music, it has an uncanny ability to encourage you toward promiscuity. Secular studies I've looked at. Very interesting. Well, it makes sense because what are they constantly pushing? I mean, the only one that seems pure in uh, that seems pure about one relationship be dedicated to one man and being a God-fearing woman that I can think of is Taylor Swift. You know, she only she only sings about being dedicated to one guy. Is that right? No, no. I was telling somebody in an interview I did recently uh, with with a gal. Uh, ex-psychic, not Doreen Virtue. I've been interviewed by her, Ross. If you check out her channel, she's got some great stuff. She was the biggest New Ager and became a Christian. And we've done a number of interviews together. But another former psychic New Ager interviewed me last week, and we were talking about that. And she wanted to talk about uh, Taylor Swift and witchcraft. And uh, we had a great chat on that. And, but one of the things I talked about was that I put Taylor Swift's songs in. I just typed in most popular Taylor Swift songs. I just looked at the first two or three the lyrics, and they're all about just <laughs> no commitment to a relationship, and it was just filthy. And I'm like, this is what people are filling their brains with? And the lady that's interviewing me was saying, she, her heart breaks to know that Christians, are people are calling themselves Christians, that listening to this trash. I mean, she has a song where she literally, uh, uh, is, she pulls in a lot of A-listers from Hollywood, and she promotes, you know, she has... It's an LGBTQ anthem, praising that whole movement. 
And guess what? Guess who she comes against, guys? Let's just be honest. I'm just being honest with you. It's Christians. She makes them look like trailer trash. And they're supposed to be Christians who are picketing this movement. And one guy has no teeth or just a couple teeth are missing. And, he's, and they don't know how to spell on their signs. And they're just made look like idiots, you know. And she's very strong into pro-killing babies in the womb and, and keeping that right alive. Yet she says that she is a Christian. Well, Joe, we can't judge those things. Oh, you bet. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christians are told that we need to judge those things in the church by those who claim to be Christians. It says that very clearly in 1 Corinthians. We're supposed to check it out. And I I encourage you because I love you. What's more important to you? I'm going to ask you a question. Everybody listen to me. What's more important to you? A good relationship with God or a relationship with Taylor Swift? Come on now. Let's talk to all of you. What's more important? Young people, I'm talking to you too. What's more important? Your relationship with Jesus or Taylor Swift? It should be Jesus. And if you really love Jesus, you should at least think about what I'm saying. You can disagree with me. Okay, and we'll agree to disagree. You can say, no, when I listen to Taylor's stuff, I get so close to Jesus. Well, I'm probably not going to agree with you, but, you know, it's between you and the Lord, ultimately, you know. I'm just saying we got to be careful, guys. And the Bible says godless chatter leads to more ungodliness. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 5 says, it's better to listen to the reproof or rebuke of a wise man than the, the songs of fools. You know how the Bible, Solomon wrote Proverbs. You know how he defines fools there? Those who are not submitted to the moral law of God. Thus saith the word of God. And what's happening right now, and I, I say this to you because at the turn of the century, Barna Research Group, they're like probably the top research group among in what's going on in the church. And they stated that divorce is more prominent among professing born-again Christians than the rest, of the, United, uh, the rest of the United States. Something is wrong with that. If their research is correct, that's saying born-again Christians are more likely to be divorced than those who aren't born again. And I, I should have said professing. They don't say professing. They just say born-again Christians. But I'll say professing because... The Bible says, you know, and, and you can, divorce is not the, you know, unforgivable sin. And a lot of times Christians end up divorced because somebody commits what? Adultery. And if you're committing adultery and you're living in sin and rebellion to God, 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 says, He that is born of God does not practice sin. So a lot of times it's because these aren't really born in Christians. No, truly born-again Christians can get divorced. And uh, many born-again Christians are divorced because they couldn't, you know, somebody cheated on them or left, left them and was in, you know, involved in something really wicked or weird. Uh, and then they divorced, they, they, the person divorced them. Or, or even you perhaps you made a mistake in your past and you've gotten right with God since, you know. Uh, and it was your fault, you know. But uh, the important thing is, is that you're right with God. But a lot of times these divorces are a result of adultery. Because, well, how come they're so widespread in the professing church? Well, I believe there's a few reasons. I believe a lot of times because there's not an emphasis on living morally. There's not an emphasis on living in all purity. Could you imagine if every church talked about how you're supposed to treat your sisters in the church, other Christian gals, as your sisters? And could you imagine if they held that standard? A lot of churches don't believe in church discipline. So people can treat the, a Bible study as a, a social meat factory. I know that doesn't happen here. That's not the hearts of the people here. Not saying there's not somebody that comes in from time to time that doesn't have wicked designs. You always got to have your eyes open, amen. But I know almost pretty much everybody here, and I know a lot of you know the ones I know here love Jesus. That's awesome. And a lot of the reason too is because people don't take heed when they stand, lest they fall. They don't believe what Paul said when he said that a Christian, even himself, could become a docamas. Oh, they believe, hey, once you're saved, you're always saved, even if you're sleeping around with everybody. No wonder it's a license to sin for many people. So there's a lot of reasons that there's impurity in the church. But God's called us to holiness, amen? Amen. He's called us to be separate from the world. He's called us to treat the younger sisters in the fellowship 
as our own sisters. He's called us to treat the sisters that are more aged as our own mothers. Amen? Amen. And if we do that, we're going to be free from sexual sin. Oh, Joe, there's other ways you can commit sexual sin. Well, at least in regard to how you treat one another. Amen? Uh-huh. And then you've got to be with all purity. So that means your inner motives need to be right with God, too. And when your inner motives are right, then you're not giving in to other forms of seduction and temptation because you're seeking God first. Amen? Amen. So we want to make sure that we pursue purity. Uh, now, this fits really well with the end of 1 Timothy 4. Remember that verse, chapter 4, verse 16? Watch your life and your doctrine. In so doing, you will save yourself and those who hear you. We already went through that. But I'm just saying, when you put that with verse 12 of chapter 4 and verse 2 of chapter 5, you get this picture. Timothy being an example. Walk in purity, you know, and, you'll, and watch your life and watch your doctrine. This is all purity. And then treat your sisters uh, with purity as though they're your own sisters. And this is so important that we get this right. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy in a world that is rife with sexual promiscuity and sexual sin. We're talking about the Greco-Roman world. You've heard about the fall of the Roman Empire. One of the major reasons that the Roman Empire fell was because of sexual perversion and sin. And they're right smack in the middle of that Roman Empire. And there's all kinds of temptation. There's not morals as the Christians were being taught. Rome being influenced by Greece, had lost, long left a moral standard of righteousness with regard to sexual purity. One of their emperors made it a law because it was becoming so uh, perverse, even before Paul wrote his letter about how uh, there needed to be more you know, chastity within a relationship. But the only one punished when there was adultery would be the woman. Isn't that interesting? And it really didn't help much. And then the Roman Empire, just with its Greek influence, uh, was horrific. In fact, biblical scholars, historians, uh, uh, Everett Ferguson writes this, all kinds of immoralities were associated with the Greco-Roman gods. Not only was prostitution a recognized institution, but through the influence of the fertility cults of Asia Minor, Syria, and Phoenicia, it became a part of the religious rites at certain temples. Thus, there were 1,000 sacred prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite at Corinth. Yeah, and I checked out what, what Everett Ferguson was writing, and even the politically correct Wikipedia states, Greek uh, geographer Strabo describes Corinth as a lust to the civilians. He said that the temple of Aphrodite once had acquired more than 1,000 prostitutes donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. In the temple, 1,000 girls worked in this manner to gather funds for their deity. It's amazing. <clears throat> no wonder these civilizations fell. A historian, British historian, Arnold uh, Toynbee, a famous British historian, wrote, All civilizations which have been destroyed have destroyed themselves. Isn't that interesting? They perished not from conquest from without, but from decay within. Sounds like our country. External pressures merely reveal the internal weaknesses which antedated the crisis. The fall of the Roman Empire, Toynbee writes, was due largely to internal corruption. He goes on to say, overemphasis on sex precedes the fall of a civilization. Isn't that interesting? They basically didn't have rules for morality, sexual morality in the Greco-Roman world. Anything was permissible. Sounds a lot like what? Our country today. We had all kinds of sexual laws on the books, but they were considered puritanical and so forth. And with the Kinsey, Kinsey, rise of Kinsey and the sexual male and then the female, the book followed that. He influenced uh, Playboy, his first, Hugh Hefner's first issue. Uh, he interviewed Kinsey. And there were all these breakthroughs that one in ten people actually is homosexual because Kinsey did the research when really it was between one and two percent. But Kinsey, they found out, interviewed people that were in prison and prostitutes when he did his data for how many people were homosexual. And 
I, I can't even repeat a lot of stuff that we expose in the Kinsey Syndrome. It's the best video out there ever made on, on Kinsey and the roots of the sexual revolution in Kinsey, by far and away. In fact, uh, Ted Bear of Movie Guide, popular, probably the most popular Christian, uh, maybe something's more popular now, but it had been for years, uh, Movie Guide, it's called. He said it was one of the most important videos of the uh, documentaries of the 21st century. If you haven't seen the Kinsey Syndrome, it's an eye popper, man. You're like, whoa, this is demonic. And I show you Kinsey was associated with Aleister Crowley and everything else. Along with uh, uh, Chris Pinto, we did work together on that. But look, just look at what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I was going to bring here today? I didn't. Some rocks from, from some brimstone from Sodom and Gomorrah. When we go on an Israel trip, we're going to go to the, the graveyards, and you'll see bones and everything. And just, you don't even have to kick them up. And brimstone, you light it on fire, and it burns. It's all over there in ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, there's an explanation. I'm sure it came from a volcano. No, no volcanoes there. Just what God's word says, that he rained fire and brimstone on them because they were totally given over to sexual sin, given over to sodomy and to, given over to homosexuality and so forth. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, so again, historians and scholars and, you know, our Alvin J. Smith in his uh, book, uh, I'm sorry, his uh, write-up, how Christianity changed the world. Listen to what he writes about the Roman. This is what Timothy lived in, guys, so you understand his background. So you don't say, well, it's a lot harder than when Timothy was going through. Oh, really? He says, writes, Roman literature written by its own authors, such as Juvenal, Ovid, uh, Martial, uh, uh, and others, he says, indicates that sexual activity between men and women had become highly promiscuous and essentially depraved before and during the time that the Christians appeared in Roman society. The British historian Edward Gibbon says in his history of the decline of the fall of the Roman Empire that the breakdown in sexual morality began after the Punic Wars ended in 146 BC by the first and second centuries after Christ. Un, uh, 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 sexual intercourse, uh, undefiled sexual intercourse, he writes, along with marital faithfulness, had essentially disappeared. Not only were adultery and fornication common, but people engaged in all sorts of sexual methods, many of them obscene. These sexual practices were shamelessly illustrated on household items such as oil lamps, bowls, cups, and vases. And by the way, I, I cut out the part because he does go on to say that these were exhibited where all the family could see these sexual things. It was like a normative thing. He says, uh, marriage was detested, quote, detested as a disagreeable necessity. He goes on to write, since uh, people had become obsessed with sex, marital unions were very short-lived. Sounds like today. That's Amen, Mark. In addition to be depraved heterosexual, I'm sorry, he writes, in addition to the depraved heterosexual sex acts of the Romans and the uninhibited portrayal of those acts, there was the widespread depravity of homosexual sex. The latter went well beyond two adult males or females sexually cohabitating with one another. He goes on to write about the pedestry or pedophilia. Many people today know the Greeks were notorious for their homosexual behavior. But often they do not know that Greek homosexual sex was primarily pedestry or pedophilia. That is, an adult man having sex with a young boy who commonly was between 12 and 16 years old. That's the society which Paul, those influences were rife throughout the Greco-Roman world. Now, you guys, that's what our country is going toward, Right? In fact, go to Hebrews chapter 13. And right now, the pedestry or pedophilia is not legal, but I've been telling you for years, that's one reason we did the Kinsey Syndrome. That's where a lot of it's headed, guys. And what do you have now? You have drag queens, men dressed like women, demanding the right to, and they don't have children. They're usually homosexuals. They can't have kids, but they want access to our kids. And they get all bent out of shape if they cannot influence our children. Chapter 13, verse 1. Let love of the brethren... I'm sorry. Yeah, well, <laughs> let love of the brethren continue. He tells us how to love the brethren. But then go to verse 4. Marriage is to be held in what? Honor among all. We're supposed to esteem marriage, brothers and sisters. And the marriage bed is to be what? 
undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. What's an adulterer? Somebody who is not faithful to their marriage is having sex with another person, even though they're married. Or someone who's not married, but they're having sex with somebody that is married. What's fornication? All sexual activity with, you know, with yeah, sex with other people outside of marriage. Okay? And it says, it's interesting, what's the last three words in our English text in verse 4? God will what? God will judge. Now again, our foundation... And if the foundations are gone, the Bible says, how shall the righteous stand? The foundation is that we are made in the image of God to become one flesh, and that's defined as a marriage. And it's holy matrimony. It's holy wedlock, we say. In fact, it's interesting. You know the word uh, naaf is the word for adultery in the Hebrew language, naaf. And what's interesting is that word is translated in Ezekiel 16 in the King James Version as wedlock. It's translated literally as, you know, breaking wedlock. I think it's two words, break wedlock in Ezekiel 16. So you have a King James Version, you'll be able to find it. It's translated break wedlock, adultery, which is interesting because the word wed, you know what the word wed means? It means a vow. It's a vow. So when you get married, you've, you've made a covenant, right, which is very, very serious in the sight of God, and you've involved in wedlock. Wed means vow. I'm committed to this relationship. And the word lock, I'm locked together. The two have become one. And we've made a covenant with each other. And Proverbs 2 and Malachi chapter 2 warn about the adulterous woman who uh, breaks the vow of her youth or the covenant of her youth, it says. And in Malachi, it talks about the adulterous man who leaves his wife for a younger woman and breaks the covenant he made with, in, in the sight of God. Isn't that interesting? And you know, covenants are very serious before God. Do you know why when you read in Scripture, sometimes animals are cut up, right, in a covenant? You know, because God was saying, hey, this is serious, man. Because if you break this, it's going to cost you your life. And that's why when you read in Scripture, if you break your wedding covenant and you commit adultery, what did God bring in the Old Testament? Judgment. And what did that judgment consist of? Yeah, go to Exodus and see how serious this is in God's eyes. Exodus uh, chapter 20, which is the, the great text on the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments from the Lord, right? And he, the first commandments in verse 3, you shall have not what? You shall not have what? You shall have no other gods before me, right? He's supposed to be first. In fact, this is the first of the ten but you know how Jesus said, is if what's the greatest of the commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with the whole heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second he says, the likening of that, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And those are the two greatest commandments. The first one is loving God with everything. And now when he gave them ten commandments in the Old Testament, nine out of the ten are repeated in the New Testament as part of the New Covenant. Nine out of these ten are repeated in the New Covenant. The only one that's not repeated for Christians that God gave to the Jews but not to uh, Christians in the New Covenant is the Sabbath, the fourth one. But what's interesting is the first four commandments deal with loving God. The last six commandments deal with loving your neighbor. And look at the seventh commandment. Look at the seventh commandment there in verse 14. If you went, if you're one of the uh, folks that went to uh, Ezekiel, I thought I might have wrote the actual verse down. I'm almost sure it's chapter 16. I didn't write the verse down. But uh, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at, you know, verse 14, the seventh commandment, verse 14, you shall not what? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit naaf. You shall not break your wedlock. Uh, look at verse 17, the tenth commandment. It also references or alludes to adultery. Look at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's what? House. You shall not covet your neighbor's what? Wife. Or his male servant. Or his female servant. Or his ox. Or his donkey. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's kind of interesting to me that two of the Ten Commandments pertain to adultery. That's very, very interesting. And why is he giving them these commandments? Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, 
Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to what? Test you. In order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. He gave them these laws to test them, to see if they were going to love him with all their hearts. Amen? He gives us these same laws except the Sabbath. And by the way, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. Amen? If someone says, do you keep the Sabbath? You say, guess what? I'm at rest in Jesus. He is my Sabbath. Amen? Amen? He, because the Bible says, let no one judge you according to the Sabbath day, for these are mere shadows, but the reality is in Christ. Amen? Amen. He's our Sabbath rest. Come to me, all of you are weary and heavily burdened your work, <laughs> and I will give you rest for your souls. Amen? Amen. And he is our rest. Now, I think it is wise also to take some time off uh, during the week and get some rest, though, too. Amen? There's some wisdom, definitely some wisdom in that. If you like to take a day off and take a Saturday and say, that's, I just observe it, I know I don't have to, praise the Lord, more power to you. Just don't make it binding on somebody else, amen? Don't say, hey, you have the mark of the beast if you don't keep the Sabbath, which one group does say, you know? Uh, so it's interesting. Go uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. A few books to your right. And when you get there, look at verse 22. Chapter 22, verse 22. This is serious. Look at what he says would happen to adulterers. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. They're supposed to be put to death. Why? Why is God being so serious about this? Therefore you shall what? Purge the evil from Israel. Because it's evil in God's eyes. It's evil. Verse 23, if there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city. In other words, if she is a participant, not trying to get escape, you know, but not crying out because in that context she would be heard in the city. And the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall what? Purge the evil from among you. Isn't that interesting? So notice twice he's talking about purging the evil from them. Now we're not under the Mosaic law. There was a theocracy. And God uh, manifested his statutes to his people because he was the lawgiver. And his servants were to uphold what was righteous and, and moral. You say, wow, that's drastic though. Wow, he was really serious about that. That's right, man. Why so serious? Did you, you heard about what we just talked about? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? What happened in the book of Judges? What happened when uh, the men did a similar act to what was happening at Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And they raped, raped that guy's concubine all night long, right? Remember the tribe of Benjamin? And nobody did anything about it, the town. And then guess what? The guy cuts up the woman that was raped into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each of the tribe of Israel of this woman. Because in the book of Judges, it says they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And God used that to wake them up. And then those, many of those tribes gathered together, became as one, and fought against the Benjamites. And guess what? When is, and, and guess what? God gave them a bit more lease, more lease on time when they stepped up. Because whole societies, whole civilizations are destroyed because of sexual morality. And the family is the most important unit outside of the church in any kind of civilization as a glue to hold society together. So when you commit sexual sin, you're not just destroying your life and the life of the one that you're with, but you're destroying everybody. You're bringing everybody down with you. You become part of the plague, part of the problem. And that's why he says you shall purge the evil from among you. He calls sexual sins an abomination. He calls them evil. This is serious stuff, guys. We have to, we don't, I don't like to use the term an affair. Oh, you know, he had an affair. What a fairy word, man. I'm sorry. An affair. An affair. Oh, homo sodomy or homosexuality. It's, it's just gay. Gay is a word that means happy, right? It does have another meaning, by the way, meaning unseemly. So kind of interesting. And it just breaks my heart because people have this primrose path, rose path that leads away from Jesus, by these lies. 
And we, we've got to tell people the truth. It's not an affair. It's adultery. And it's an evil in God's sight. And we have to run from it. We have to flee. The Bible says flee sexual sins. Amen? Flee youthful lust, the scriptures say as well. It's like Joseph. What happened when Potiphar's wife grabbed his cloak? What did he do? He fled. You know? And he honored God in what he did. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. How much time does, do I have, man? No, I don't. <laughs> That's nice of you, though. All the time in the world, it says 10 minutes. Only because that clock says 5 to 7, and I don't want to go by that clock. Because I think it said 5 to 7 when I got here. I'm just giving you a reminder. We've got to fix that clock up there. Okay, first, because uh, <laughs> you guys might be in big trouble. <laughs> like, no, that cannot be right. Okay, so turn, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just pick it up with me, please, at uh, verse 1. And uh, Paul's writing to the church of Thessalonica, who had turned from idols to the living God. They had that kind of perverse sexual background we were talking about, many of them. Okay, and they t- turned from their idols uh, to serve uh, the living God, which I, I love how they're described in a First Thessalonians, and it's just it's just beautiful how how they're described. And in fact, look at verse nine of chapter one, real quick. For they themselves report about us the kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned from God, or you turned to God from what idols to what serve a living and true God. What a great picture of what repentance looks like when it's completed. Amen. Amen. Turning from idols to the living God. So they were worshiping these idols. And keep in mind, a lot of these temples that they're worshiping idols at had sex prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And you could be unfaithful to your wife and have relationships with a temple prostitute, but it was considered a good thing because by having relations with these temple prostitutes, you would make sure that the rain would fall and you would have harvest that year. So you're a champion. How twisted, debauched, and demonic is that? It it, it treats promiscuity as though it's a a, a virtue instead of a vice. Are you with me tonight? It's important to talk about these things. And I try not to get into too much Bible background, but I think it is important to have background when you're looking at these kinds of things. uh, So you understand that they were in a uh, context that was incredibly debauched. But look at how Paul tells them to live in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort in in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your what? Sanctification. He's saying the will of God is your sanctification. What's sanctification? To be what? Set apart unto God's service. Amen. Be consecrated to God. Separated from that which is evil. Consecrated to God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You know what the will of God is for you? Sanctification. Are you being sanctified? Are you sexually pure right now? Are you making sure you're not involved in unlawful sexual relationships? You're not pursuing someone who you're not married to? but you're married to someone else? Or you're single, but you're having sex outside of marriage with someone? That's not biblical. Oh, I wish you'd talk more about pornography. Don't worry, that's Sunday's message. Okay? Don't be there. I'll I'll remember why you're not here. No, just kidding. (laughs) I'm just teasing, you know. Although, in case it crossed your mind, please make sure you're here because it's important for everybody. I've been working on that study too. And he goes... uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, now check this out. What does he say right after it's God's will that they're sanctified, their sanctification? That is that you abstain from what? Sexual immorality. Porneo, sexual sin. By the way, from the word porneo, we get the word, guess what? Pornography. Okay. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about pornography. Yeah, it does. Jesus talked about lusting after a woman in your heart, not even doing the act, right? Oh, and the Bible is showing the Old Testament, chapter 22 of Deuteronomy, I believe, we just didn't keep reading, where it talks about not looking up, you know, nakedness of someone that doesn't belong to you. Ah, that's happening today. That's pornography. It's a form of pornography. Amen? Praise God. Okay. Uh, 
Verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, your own body. Because the Bible says we're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies. Amen. In sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and what? Defraud his brother in this matter. Because, well, interesting. Don't, you know what always trips me out when I look at this passage? Don't defraud your brother. And the word brother, anthropos, there is, is used. I think it's anthropos in the Greek. I have to look it up. But usually it's anthropos when you see brother. It refers to male and female in this context. So what if a gentleman is married to a woman here, and then he wants to have a relationship also with another woman, and then he secretly is on the side with that other woman, but he knows the woman wants to know if she has his heart. And he says, I love you, baby. Does he really love her? Is he praying for her genuinely or is he praying on her? He's praying on her. According to the Bible, is he blessing her or is he defrauding her? You know what that Greek word defraud means? It means to defraud. It means to rip someone off. So if you're in a relationship and you're not married and you're having sex with a gal, don't say, I love you. Say, I defraud you. <laughs> Just be honest about it. I'm ripping you off. I'm ripping you off of what you should only give to your husband. I'm ripping you off of that which belongs to God. I'm ripping you off of your eternity if you don't repent. And if she says, well, I love you too. Is she loving him? She's defrauding him as well. Remember that. Remember that. You're like, you love this study? Praise the Lord, brother. It's the word of God. Amen. Verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because, ooh, get stronger. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. We've seriously warned you. God is the avenger of all these things. How so? Jesus, when he was talking about sexual sin, he says it's better to cut your right hand off than go to heaven without your right hand than go to hell with your whole body. To cut your right eye out and go to heaven with one eye rather than the whole body in hell. Does he mean literally cut one eye out? No, because that wouldn't make sense because if you cut an eye out, you still have the other eye. Where's the real problem? In your heart. He's using hyperbolic language to say you need to get really serious. And that's what Paul's saying. I, we solemnly warned you, right? That God is the avenger. God says, vengeance is mine. How serious is that? 1 Corinthians 6, don't be deceived. Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, and effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, 4 through 8, really, that God's wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. He warns against Christians being deceived to think they'll enter the kingdom of, inherit the kingdom of Christ when they're involved in sexual sin. Ooh, there's again. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, when it deals with the lust of the flesh and it gives 22 different vices, it lists sexual immorality in verse 19. In Revelation chapter 21, 8, it talks about God's, God sending the, those who are involved in whoremongers, the King James. That was my first translation of the Bible. But it, the Greek word is sexually immoral. It's porneo. To the lake of fire, Revelation 22, 14 and 15, that those involved in porneo will not enter the holy city. This is serious. I say this and I speak this way because I love you. Are you like, man, I'm so convicted right now. I've got to find a church where I don't have to be told I have to say I defraud you if I'm, you know. Well, no, I love you. I'm going to tell you the truth. Amen? And if I'm sick and out, Steve's going to tell you the truth. And if Steve's sick and out, Chad's going to tell you the truth. And Chad's, sick, you know, it's funny. Chad's sick and out. John Hebrew will be up here telling you the truth, right? Because we're all about the truth. Amen? And that's what we all should be sharing with people. Amen? And I know we have a lot of people that love the truth, and it's beautiful. Amen? So it's really interesting because uh, he says, you know, in fact, look at verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. Whoop, there's, a, there's a word impurity. But in what? Sanctification. A big part of your sanctification is sexual purity. Amen? So he rejects. Well, I, I, I'm rejecting what you're saying there, Joe. Well, Paul's writing this. Why well, reject what Paul's saying there? 
Uh, God, I have a special relationship with God. I'm the exception. Really? Look at verse 8. So he rejects this as not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He's warning those who have the Holy Spirit, by the way, that true Christians can fall. In fact, you know what's interesting? I had some verses that I'm not going to read where God talks about guarding your heart and how the real issue is your heart. You know, we talked about that a little bit, right? And I thought, isn't it interesting? Because I, I mentioned something some time ago, and my brother Tom remembered it from a message. He goes, Joe, I remember a while back you said something. You remember that? When you said, and a, a uh, disproportion of men have heart attacks while they're committing adultery. And I said that years ago, and he remembered that. I go, yeah, I saw a study along those lines. And I didn't follow up on that. He wasn't saying, hey, can you send me? He goes, that's a trip. He's just talking about how that's a trip. Well, guess what I did today? I looked for the studies. I'm like, where did I see that? And man, check this out. Because if your heart's right with Jesus, you won't be involved in adultery and fornication. Amen? And you'll love the person that's trying to tempt you enough to say, no, that's destructive, and I'm not going to defraud you. And I'm not going to let you defraud me because I put Jesus before you. Amen? And plus, God's the avenger of all those who do these things. And I want to be sanctified because without sanctification, says no one will see the Lord. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Well, okay, guys. A 2000 Italian study found that men in long-term extramural relationships were more likely to have heart problems. That was 2009. Guess what? 2012. 2012 study by the University of Florence found that for men, quote, infidelity outside the home was associated with a higher risk of major cardiovascular event, including fatal heart attacks. That's from the Huffington Post, May 24th, 2012, cheating study. Men who cheat are more likely to have heart attacks. Wow. You know? Sudden coil death is more common when the man is having extramarital sex and in an unfamiliar place. Uh, in early 2012, the CDC, the CDC analyzed autopsy reports, and this, is, this one tripped me out. In 2000, early 2012, the CDC analyzed autopsy reports and found that 75% of the people who died of a heart attack during sex were having extramarital sex at the time of death. That's huge. Because that means, now way more, there's millions of people are married. Everyone that's having adulterous sex is married, right? And then there's all the other millions and millions and millions of people that aren't doing it. But 75% of guys that have heart attacks while they're having adulterous sex, out of the 100% that have heart attacks during sex, 75% are having heart attacks and many of them dying. Oh, I love you, baby. I'm giving you my whole heart. Yeah, you are. You know? You are. And, uh, and you're dying in your sin. That's even... So next time, husbands, if you want to cheat on your wife, you're more likely than... If you think people have heart problems and it's concerned, you, you've got big heart problems. Heart problem with God, number one. Number two, you very likely could die having a heart attack while you're having sex with this new gal. Okay? This blows me away. Don't cheat, you know? Because you may have a heart attack. Okay? Amen? In contrast, because time is out, there was a Time Magazine article, uh, how marriage can actually protect your heart health. And I'm not going to get into all the details of the article, but it just talks about you know, how people who were divorced had about a 35% higher risk of developing heart disease than married people. Now, if you're a godly person and you're divorced and, and you're seeking Jesus, you know that probably that, that statistics could even out with those who are faithfully married and stuff. I don't know how that works. But I do know that why would people be having heart attacks? Well, one thing, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Amen? I'm sure there's, there, they say it's a mystery. There's hypotheses as why this is happening. But I say, look at what God's word says. Amen? God says you're going to reap what you sow. You know? So brothers and sisters, our time has, you know, vanished. And I just want to encourage you guys if you're married, do the best you can to stay married. Well, what about, you know, oh, I'm going to just get into a whole bunch of other stuff, and I better not right now. Okay, I'm going at the clock. But we can't cover it all in one message, amen? But remain faithful to your marriage, amen? If you're, if you're a young person and you're not married yet, be, pure, be faithful. Be in all purity. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as your brothers and sisters, amen? 
well, what if I'm going to marry one of them? Well, when you're married, now they're your spouse. Amen? When you're married. But you're not married yet. And God will be, let God be your peace. Amen? If you're single, recognize the best relationship you could possibly have with anyone is with Jesus Christ. Amen? We are his bride. He is our groom. Amen? And even marital relationships will cease when we die because we'll be, in, we'll be subsumed in the picture as the bride of Christ with him for eternity. Amen? So if you're single, and somebody says, are you married? Yeah, I am. Well, if it's a person that really likes you and you think this might, don't say, I might ruin the chance with them, eh? But you, you, but you can say, hey, yeah, <laughs> I've got a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's my heavenly bridegroom. What are you talking about? Boom, good time to witness. Father God, we love you so much. Help us to be pure. Help us to take your warnings. Help us to realize that you've called these things an abomination. You've talked about purging the evil things from our midst, Father. And we know in the church, Father, because we're not in the, under the theocracy of the Old Testament law, that you're still against sexual sin, but we'll be excluded from your kingdom forever. So may we not practice sin. And Father, each and every one of us together say, Father, forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Give us a right heart. Help us to guard our hearts, Father, from evil. Help us to guard them because from our hearts, your word says, come the springs of life, Father. May we guard them with all diligence. And may we give you a pure heart. May we walk in the spirit so we'll fulfill the desires of the flesh. We thank you for eternal life. May our hearts belong to you now and forevermore. Help us to treat each other as a family and love each other and protect each other and guard each other as well. Your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.